The following message was given at Emanuel Baptist Church, Coconut Creek, Florida. Well, if you take your Bibles now and turn uh, to Luke chapter 16, and uh, we're picking up today where we left off. This will probably be the last sermon in Luke for a while, is I plan to take a break from Luke as I've tended to do in the study of Luke, to preach through several chapters, then go to something else, and come back so that by the time I'm 80 years old, we'll finish the book of Luke. <laughs> but God willing, I think next time we're going to pick up with a, a study of uh, Paul's first epistle to Timothy, and then when we finish that, we'll come back uh, to the gospel of Luke, God willing. So we're picking up today with verse 19 of chapter 16, so follow with me. As I read, there was a certain man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. So it was that the beggar died. And was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted, and you are tormented. And besides all this, between us and you there is a great gulf fixed, so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. Then he said, I beg you therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers, that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Abraham said to him, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. Let's pray together. (coughs) Our Father, we come to you in your holy word today, thanking you for all that we have heard and sung and prayed. And now as we come, we ask that you would grant the help of your spirit that we might not treat your word lightly or carelessly or listen to it lightly or carelessly. but Help us reverently to come before your word. We pray that your spirit would open our hearts to understand, to feel the power of its truth at work in our hearts, that you might be glorified among us and that good might be brought to us through your word. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. 
Well, as we return today to the study of the Gospel of Luke, we return to this well-known and very sobering parable of our Lord, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. And a few of you may remember, a few, that I actually brought five messages on this parable way back in 2013. And there's a little book that I wrote that's built upon those sermons that you can find in our bookstore. It's entitled, The Rich Man and Lazarus, The Plain Truth About Life After Death. Well, I don't plan uh, to bring five sermons from this parable uh, this time, now in the course of this expositional series in Luke, but you can get the book in the bookstore if you want to dig in deeper. But my purpose is to limit myself to two messages on this parable. The first of these I gave last time, focusing on verses 19 to 26. There Jesus described for us the different conditions of two men. He gives a series of contrasts. There are different conditions in this life. There are different conditions in terms of their death and burial. And there are different conditions immediately after death. And we saw that there were a number of important lessons taught in this first part of the parable or history. I gave an argument for this being a history, but also having parabolic elements in it, figurative elements in it, especially conversations between people in heaven and in hell going on. There's a figurative aspect to this, but at the same time, I believe that the rich man and Lazarus were two real men, one who went to be with the Lord in heaven and one who went to hell. But there are important lessons here. For example, it teaches us that a man's outward condition in life whether rich or poor, is no certain sign of where he stands in his relationship to God. It teaches uh, the continued existence of the soul after death in either heaven or hell, and uh, that the state of the lost after death is one of conscious, inescapable torment. These are things we learned from this parable last time we looked at it. But there's one other major emphasis of this parable that I want to focus on and direct our attention to this morning. It's the focus of the climax of the parable in the final conversation between Abraham and the man in hell. Specifically, what Jesus says to us here about the sufficiency of Scripture. The sufficiency of Scripture. Verse 29, Abraham says, "...they have Moses and the prophets." Let them hear them. Verse 31, if they will not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. Martin Luther once said, I have made a covenant with God that he sends me neither visions, dreams, nor even angels. I am well satisfied with the gift of the Holy Scriptures which give men abundant instruction and all I need to know, both for this life and for that which is to come. Martin Luther, in other words, believed in the sufficiency of Scripture. Now, as some of you know, at the very heart of the Protestant Reformation is the doctrine that came to be known as sola scriptura, a Latin phrase that means by Scripture alone. 
Well, the sufficiency of Scripture is a subset of sola scriptura. It's an absolutely essential and critical aspect of sola scriptura. Uh, Though uh, sola scriptura is larger, it assumes and includes other attributes of Scripture. For example, both sola scriptura and the sufficiency of Scripture as a subset of it, they both assume the inspiration and inerrancy of Scripture. Sola Scriptura also asserts the authority of Scripture as God's final word and final court of appeal, and the clarity of Scripture, that its saving message is clear enough to be understood by all who approach the truth with prayerful humility and faith. But then together with the Bible's trustworthiness, authority, and clarity, there is the Bible's sufficiency. And very simply, the sufficiency of Scripture means this, that all things necessary for us to know for salvation and for living the Christian life have been given to us in the Scriptures. That the Bible is not only our supreme and final authority, it's the authority that provides us with all that we need for salvation and for living the Christian life living to God's glory. The Bible is enough. Now, because this is a a doctrine that's often been caricatured uh, by those who oppose it or who who seek to demean it, and also sometimes it's wrongly understood and it's wrongly applied by others who claim to believe it, I think something needs to be said before we go any further and look at the text itself about this doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture what it does not mean, okay, what it does not mean. First of all, it doesn't mean the Scriptures are sufficient for every conceivable purpose. For example, the Scriptures are not sufficient as a textbook for algebra or biology or Spanish or chemistry or medical science. You won't find a discussion of aerodynamics in the Bible. There are other sources of knowledge in the realm of what is called natural revelation that are not directly derived from the Bible. And the sufficiency of Scripture does not mean that we are to to, uh, shun every non-biblical source of knowledge. But it does mean that every other source of knowledge is to be evaluated and judged by the infallible, inerrant teaching of Scripture as our final authority. John Calvin used a very helpful illustration of uh, spectacles or eyeglasses to illustrate this. He said the Bible is not only what we read, but what we read with. In other words, we use the scriptures as eyeglasses, spectacles through which we read and evaluate the world and the knowledge that is given to us by the light of nature. It's a great illustration. We don't reject out of hand other fields of knowledge and study, but we do subject them to the authority, the scrutiny of the Bible, and view them through the spectacles of the Bible. And if ever their assertions contradict the Bible, it's then that we reject them. But then secondly, the sufficiency of Scripture does not mean that everything we need for salvation and the Christian life will always be found explicitly stated in a particular Scripture verse. Perhaps one of the best, most precise expressions of this important doctrine is found in the Westminster Confession of Faith. 
and then also in the very slightly modified version, uh, the second London Baptist Confession of Faith. Reading from chapter 1, paragraph 6. The whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life is either expressly set down or necessarily contained in Holy Scripture. The Westminster Confession has it this way, is either explicitly set down or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from Scripture. That's the doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture. But notice the language. is either expressly set down or by good and necessary consequence deduced from Scripture. In other words, what are they saying? They're saying that sometimes what is necessary for faith and practice is not addressed directly but indirectly. It's learned, it's gathered, it's determined by comparing Scripture with Scripture, by drawing out the necessary implications and conclusions, sometimes from a number of passages taken together, and also from inspired and approved examples uh, that we see in Scripture, and so on. Thirdly, the sufficiency of Scripture does not exclude the necessary role of the Holy Spirit in helping us to understand giving us a heart to love and to embrace the teaching of Scripture. Again, as the confession immediately follows with this statement, nevertheless, we acknowledge the inward illumination of the Spirit of God to be necessary for the saving understanding of such things as are revealed in the Word. And then fourthly, the sufficiency of Scripture does not exclude the teaching ministry of the church, both past and present. It doesn't mean that using other resources that can help us to understand the scriptures, such as good commentaries or works of theology, is wrong, or that we're to ignore the labors of the church and gifted men that God has given to the church throughout the centuries to help us to accurately state and to summarize the doctrines of scripture in creeds or confessions of faith. There are some evangelicals who followed in the steps of Alexander Campbell, who was one of the founders of the Church of Christ, who said this, I have endeavored to read the scriptures as though no one had read them before me. Now that may sound pious, but it doesn't preserve sola scriptura, it distorts it. Instead of the scriptures alone, it becomes me alone. You see, it's not a denial of the sufficiency of scripture to be helped in our understanding of Scripture by others. Christ has ordained the Christian ministry. He's ordained that there be teachers and preachers and theologians in the church. And we have 2,000 years of church history in which the church has labored to study the Word of God. And we have teachers even today who teach us. And so we, when we, we read and we study Scripture, not just alone, but also with the church, both past and present. You see, the Reformers... They never rejected theological tradition as bad in and of itself, but only when it can be shown to contradict Scripture. You see, the sufficiency of Scripture means that all extra-biblical resources and human teachers and doctrinal standards, however helpful they may be, are never to be viewed in the same category as Scripture and are never to be used independently of Scripture, are viewed as having equal authority 
with Scripture. They're only to be believed and embraced insofar as what they teach is seen to be true to the teaching of God's infallible and all-sufficient Word. Well, having defined the sufficiency of Scripture, we're ready now to look at our text, picking up at verse 27. And hopefully to see how this, this passage very powerfully underscores this doctrine, especially here as it relates to the salvation of sinners. First, we have the final request of the man in hell in Abraham's response. And then we have the protest of the man in hell and Abraham's response. So let's consider the final request, first of all, of the man in hell. You remember his first request up in verse 24, <coughs> excuse me, was that Lazarus might come to him with a drop of water to cool his tormented tongue. But that being denied, he comes back now with a second request in verse 27. Then he said, I beg you therefore, Father, that you would send him, Lazarus, to my father's house. Seeing that all of my crying for mercy is of no avail, it's too late, my damnation is final and irrevocable, and my punish will have, punishment will have no end. Seeing this is so, let me ask about my family. Couldn't something be done for the rest of my family to keep them from coming to this awful place of torment? And then he comes up with a plan, a plan for evangelism. Now, people are often doing that. It seems like just in the years I've been a Christian, there's all kinds of books. They always come out, this new plan for evangelism. So he's got a plan for evangelism. Here's his plan. I beg you to send Lazarus back to my father's house to warn them. Verse 28. For I have five brothers that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. So, so here's his plan for effective evangelism. Send Lazarus back from hell to warn them. Now I want you to think about this request for a moment. <coughs> There's an assumption here. Now, the text doesn't specifically state it, but I think his conversation with Abraham after this, as we go on, it will confirm that the request of the man in hell involves a subtle kind of self-justification. Send Lazarus from the dead, and they will repent. Now, do you see there's a subtle form of self-justification in this? Let me illustrate. Let's say that here's a guy who's driving down the road, and there's uh, some work going on on the highway, and they have these blink, this blinking yellow light and a sign that says you're only to drive at 35 miles per hour. And so he's going along, and he's driving 55, 60 miles per hour. He gets pulled over, and the policeman is going to write him a ticket. <clears throat> While he's writing a ticket uh, to him, the poli- uh, he says to the policeman, you know, you know, sir, I have several friends of mine who often drive down this street, and, and that blinking light was kind of hard to see. I think it would help if you put two blinking lights. If you'd put two blinking lights up there and some bigger lights on the road that they could see, then that, that would keep my friends from coming down the road and going too fast and getting a ticket as well. Now, what's that driver really say? Well, what he's really doing by asking that the highway department put two lights up there or put a bigger light 
there so his friends don't get a ticket like he did. Well, one thing he's doing is he's making an excuse for himself. He's implying that he's not fully responsible. The signs are not big enough. The lights are not bright enough. The fault is with the sign, not with him. Well, you see, that's exactly what the man in hell is insinuating by his request. His request reveals his thinking. Here he is in hell. No one ever came to him from the dead to warn him. If only someone had, I wouldn't be here. It's not my fault, really. It's God's fault. I was never sufficiently warned. Do what was never done for me and give sufficient warning for my brothers by sending Lazarus back from the dead to tell them firsthand what he has seen. And that, I'm convinced, is the underlying spirit of the rich man's request. And this, this will become clearer in a moment. Well, what was Abraham's reply to his request? It was very simple and brief. Verse 29, Abraham said to him, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. Now, the expression Moses and the prophets, as many of you know, was a common way of referring to the writings of Moses and the prophets. Abraham is, is referring here to the Old Testament scriptures. And he's saying the scriptures are enough. The scriptures are sufficient to warn men of everlasting punishment and to point them to the way of salvation. Let them hear the scriptures. So we have this final request of the man in hell and Abraham's response. Next we have, secondly, the protest of the man in hell. How did the rich man respond to Abraham's words? Well, he raises a protest. Notice first his argument, verse 30. And he said, no, Father Abraham. Could you imagine being in hell and saying no to Father Abraham? Obviously, there's a figurative conversation here, but no, you're wrong. No, Father Abraham, I'm sorry, but you're wrong. True, they have the Scriptures, but that's not enough. If one goes to them from the dead, then they'll repent, then they'll be persuaded. That will do it. That's what is needed. The Scriptures alone are not enough. They were not enough for me, and they're not enough for them. Let some great miracle be performed. Show them a sign, and they'll believe. Let Lazarus return from the world beyond to authenticate the message of Scripture. And when they see his ghastly form, and when this visitor from another world tells them about hell and about heaven, the spectacular and unusual manner of his warning, the terror of his appearance will alarm them and awaken them. When they see Lazarus, they'll be so struck with fear and awe that they'll be convinced, they'll be persuaded, and they will repent. The scriptures are not enough. But if one comes to them from the dead, that will convince them. This was his argument. Then in the last verse, we have Abraham's final response. And really, this is the climax of this entire parable. Verse 31. But he said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. Now, what is Jesus saying to us here through the mouth of Abraham? He's telling us that the Scriptures are sufficient. 
And not only that, there are no other means better or more effective than the Scriptures are. Think about the God who made us, He knows better than we do what is most adapted to bring men to repentance. He who has made all of the faculties of our souls knows best what has the greatest tendency to move them and to work upon them. And also, he knows what means he has chosen to accompany with the awakening, renewing influences of the Holy Spirit. And that means it's not some spectacular miracle. It's not some outside authority confirming the Scriptures. That means it's the Holy Scriptures themselves. And if men will not hear the Scriptures, they have no hope of being persuaded by any other means. Neither will they be persuaded, even if someone comes back from the dead to warn them. Well, having opened up the text, we have a passage here with some very important implications for our entire view of the Bible, and especially when it comes to the salvation of men. And I want to underscore two important truths that are here, drawing out some practical lessons from each of them. And the first one, is we're reminded in this passage that the Scriptures are sufficient to bring men to salvation, to repentance and faith in Christ. Now, <clears throat> granted, the, the reference here is specifically to the Old Testament Scriptures, Moses and the prophets, because only the Old Testament Scriptures were in existence at that time. And it's correct to say that at every given point in redemptive history, the revelation that God provided at that time was sufficient for that time. But if the Old Testament scriptures were sufficient for the rich man in hell, how much more is that true now that Christ, God's final word, has come and the work of redemption has been finished once and for all so that with the ministry of his authorized and appointed apostles, the canon of Scripture has been completed. And we today have both the Old and the New Testament Scriptures, the whole of Scripture, which has as its primary focus and purpose the revelation of Jesus Christ and the way of salvation in Him. This is not only true of the New Testament, it was true of the Old Testament as well. Well, our text makes it very clear that the Scriptures are fully adequate and sufficient to bring men and women to repentance and faith in Christ. Send back Lazarus to my father's house to warn my brothers. They have the scriptures, Abraham replies. Let them hear them. No, Father Abraham, that's not sufficient. The scriptures are inadequate. If someone went back from the dead, then they'll repent. You're wrong, is Abraham's answer. If they will not hear the scriptures, neither will they be persuaded though one rise from the dead. What's the message? Well, the message is very simply this. The Scriptures are enough. The Scriptures are fully adequate. The Scriptures are completely sufficient for salvation. Now, we all need to ask ourselves this question. Do I agree with Abraham? Do I agree with Abraham? When it comes to the salvation of sinners... When it comes to my own salvation, Abraham says, Jesus says, through Abraham, the scriptures are enough. The rich man in hell says they're not enough. 
Men need something more than the Scriptures if they're going to believe the gospel and be saved from hell. So ask yourself, which side of this debate between these, the rich man and Abraham are you on? Because it's a debate that's continued to this present day. For example, Rome says the Scriptures are not enough for salvation. We also need the, the sacred traditions handed down and authorized by the Roman church. These are equally authoritative and necessary for faith and salvation. The Quakers said the scriptures are not enough. We need the inner light, this inner voice from God speaking to us. Theological liberals say the scriptures are not enough. The scriptures must be subjected to the supreme authority of human reason. And naturalism, there, there are some others today who are telling us that the Scriptures are not enough, apart from being supplemented by the speculations of human philosophy. Many charismatics, in effect, say the Bible is not enough. We also need new revelations of the Spirit. In fact, for much of the evangelical church today, Scripture is not enough. We can't expect people to read the Bible or to listen to sermons or Bible teaching. That's no good anymore. Folks will never be attracted to that. If we want to reach people, we need concerts. We need drama and movies and bands and choreography and celebrities. But Jesus says the Scriptures are enough. The Scriptures are sufficient for salvation. But there is indeed this tendency in men to, to desire to wish for something else. You say to yourself, if only God would let me actually see hell in a vision. Or something like that. <clears throat> it seems to me, God, that it would be much easier, it would be much better if you would send an angel down from heaven to testify of Christ. Or if you're really there, why don't you do something miraculous? Send someone back from the dead. If you did something like that, God, then I would repent and come to Christ. To expect me simply to read the Bible. Or for you to simply declare and explain to me the Scriptures and expect me to believe merely on the basis of what the Bible says. That's not enough. Well, God says it is enough. It is enough. Perhaps you say with the man in hell, give me more and I'll believe. No, you won't. No, you won't. If something unusual and spectacular happened, you'd find fault with that. I mean, if Lazarus did come back from the dead, they'd, they'd find fault with that. Said, that's not, how do we know that's really Lazarus? Maybe this is a trick. It's just demons. This is demonic. It's coming from demons, right? They'd find fault with that as well. So would you, if you refuse to believe God's word, even if someone came bursting out of the graveyard and came from hell to warn you, you'll remain the same. Maybe you think if God would just send some prophet to the church on Sunday with new revelations, someone who could work miracles, then I'd believe. Well, think about Let's think about Elijah and Elisha, probably, probably the two prophets that, that worked the most miracles 
And in their particular time, their particular ministry, how did people respond to Elijah and Elisha? The vast majority of those who heard their ministry continued to walk in their own ways and to serve their idols. Oh, but if God's voice would somehow speak audibly from heaven, God, if you'd just speak from heaven with an audible voice, then I'll believe. Well, remember that generation that came out of Egypt with Moses? They heard the very voice of God speaking to them from heaven out of the midst of the fire at Mount Sinai. But did they turn from their sins? No, not long after that, they made a golden calf, and all of them except Joshua and Caleb proved to be a rebellious generation. Think of the generation who lived when Christ himself walked upon earth. Maybe you said to yourself, if I could only have been there, if I could only have seen Christ with my own eyes, if I could only have heard his teaching with my own ears and had seen him perform the miracles and the healings that he, he did, then I would believe. But was that the case with the vast majority of those who actually saw those things? Well, some of them were affected for a while, but in spite of it all, most of them ultimately despised and rejected and crucified the Lord of glory. Think about how often we see men and women laid upon a sick bed or involved in some kind of accident that brings them very close to death or they get some diagnosis from the doctor and they begin to be fearful for their life and they're brought perhaps to the very edge of the grave. And for a time they seem to be interested in God and the gospel and concerned about their souls, but soon they recover and it's all forgotten, and they go right back to their sins. You see, none of these things are effectual means to bring men and women to faith in Christ. The only sufficient means, the means that God has appointed, the means through which he has determined by his Spirit to bring sinners to faith in Christ is the Scriptures. So, my friend, don't deceive yourself. If you're here this morning... And you're waiting around for something else to happen to persuade you. Then you're going to be waiting forever until you wake up one day in hell with the rich man. Stop demanding from God something that even if he were to give it to you would still leave you as you are so long as the scriptures are not enough to satisfy you. If you would be saved, my friend, you must listen to God's word. You must believe what God says. You must respond to what God says by rejecting your own ideas and your own foolish opinions and your own foolish thoughts. And you must come to Jesus just as a little child for the salvation that he freely gives taking God at his word that whoever believes on him shall not perish. Well, we must hurry on. There's a second important truth pointed to in Abraham's conversation with the man in hell. Not only are the scriptures the God-appointed and fully sufficient means of bringing men to salvation, secondly, the scriptures are sufficiently, a sufficiently self-authenticating means. Okay, what do I mean by that? 
Well, they are a self-proving means of salvation. In other words, a means that a means that proves its own divine origin, excuse me, <clears throat> and authority, apart from the need of any outside anything outside of it to authenticate it. And let me explain. What was really the essence of the rich man's argument? Was he saying that the scriptures aren't true? No, he wasn't saying that. He's now very painfully aware of the fact that the, the scriptures are true. His point is not what the scriptures teach is not true and authoritative. His argument is that men need something else outside of the scriptures to convince them that the scriptures are true. I mean, you can't expect people to believe on the testimony of the scriptures alone. They need some kind of miracle or some revelation or some authority other than and outside of the scriptures to convince them that the scriptures really are the word of God. The scriptures themselves are not able to do that. <clears throat> that was the essence of his argument. But what was Abraham's response? Well, Abraham says, in effect, not only are the scriptures true, the scriptures sufficiently prove themselves to be true. The scriptures authenticate themselves. You don't need somebody to rise from the dead to authenticate for you the truthfulness and the authority of scriptures. The scriptures themselves and of themselves sufficiently compel belief in their own divine authority and truthfulness, and they do that without the need of anything outside of them to authenticate them. If a man has the scriptures, he has enough to be convinced. Now, my friends, that's an extremely important truth. In fact, right here is the very heart of the difference between the Roman Catholic view of Scripture and the Reformed and Protestant view of Scripture. <clears throat> when the question is asked, how do we know and believe that the Scriptures are the authoritative Word of God? Well, Rome argues because the church tells us that they are. According to Rome, the Scriptures alone are not enough to compel our faith. The Bible needs something outside of itself to attest to its divine authority, and that something else is the Roman church. It's the consensus of the church and the traditions of the church and the opinions of the fathers and the declarations of the pope that authenticate the Scriptures. Therefore, the Roman Catholic Church is, in fact, demanding faith in itself as the final authority not the Word of God. We believe the Scriptures, not on the authority of God alone, but on the authority of the church. It's the church that authenticates the Scripture. That's the Roman Catholic position. But think about it. If that were the case, then we would all be faced with another question. Okay, then. Well, then who authenticates the church? And then you want to tell, you give me some answer to that question, I'm going to say, okay, well, who authenticates that? And you somebody, well, at some point, you hit a ceiling, and there's got to be a final word, a final authority. And that final authority is not the church, it is the Bible. You see, the question is, what is the final and ultimate authority, the Bible or something outside the Bible? 
if the Bible itself is not the final authority, and we have to appeal to something else outside of it to assure us of its divinity, then whatever that thing is, it becomes the final authority. Whether it's, it can even be a priesthood of scholars. Whatever it is, that thing becomes the final authority, not the Bible. And that's precisely what has happened in the history of Roman Catholicism. But the doctrine of the Reformation is the very doctrine that we see set forth by the Lord Jesus in this text, that the Scriptures authenticate themselves. There is no higher authority to which a man can appeal than the Scriptures. We believe the Scriptures, not because the church tells us what to believe or because some outside uh, source authenticates the Scriptures for us. We believe the Scriptures because the Scriptures are, in fact, the Word of God. And listen, God's Word is not a dead word. My dear friends, it's the Word of the living God, and He knows how to speak. And He knows how to speak convincingly to the creatures that He has made. And in fact, He does so. And because the Bible is the very Word of God Himself speaking to us, the Scriptures authenticate themselves in the language of our confession, the heavenliness of the matter, the efficacy of the doctrine, and the majesty of the style, the consent of all the parts, the scope of the whole, which is to give glory to God, the full discovery it makes of the way of man's salvation, and many other incomparable excellencies and entire perfections thereof are arguments by which it does abundantly evidence itself to be the word of God. Calvin makes this point in a very striking way, and I quote, He says, but with regard to the question, how shall we be persuaded of its divine original or that the scriptures are from God? There they are, God's word. So in respect to the question, how shall we be persuaded of this unless we have recourse to the decrees of the church? This is just as if anyone should inquire, how shall we learn to distinguish light from darkness, white from black, sweet from bitter? For the scripture exhibits as clear evidence of its truth as white and black things do of their color or sweet and bitter things do of their taste. But you say, okay, pastor, if the scriptures are self-authenticating then, why doesn't everyone who hears the gospel believe and be saved? That's a great question. It's a great question. Here's the answer. Because when men refuse to believe the Scriptures, the problem is not that the Scriptures alone are insufficient to compel belief. It's not that God mumbled, God stumbled, that He's failed to speak to us in a sufficiently clear and convincing manner. No, the problem is with the human heart. It is sin. Men willfully refuse to see. They refuse to listen to the voice of their creator speaking to them. They willfully shut their eyes against the truth. As Paul says, they suppress the truth in unrighteousness unless the Holy Spirit does a work of regenerating grace in their hearts. And that's why the confession goes on to say, after emphasizing the self-authenticating nature of Scripture, it then says, yet notwithstanding our full persuasion and assurance 
of the infallible truth and divine authority thereof is from the inward work of the Holy Spirit, bearing witness by and with the word in our hearts. And this is why Jesus said in John 3, you must be born again or you'll never see and you'll never enter the kingdom of God. The word must come, 1 Thessalonians 1, 5, not in word only, but in power and in the Holy Spirit and with much assurance. But it's not the spirit without the word. Notice how the language is the spirit bearing witness by and with the word in the sinner's heart. It's the Holy Spirit working with the word that creates faith in the heart's of sinners, opens the heart to embrace the Bible and to embrace the gospel for what it indeed is the authoritative word and truth of the living God. The Holy Spirit doesn't make it the word of God. It is the word of God. And it sufficiently evidences itself to be so that men are without excuse. But men are blinded by their sin, prejudiced against the truth of God in his sin, but when the Spirit comes in the context of hearing and reading of God's Word, and he does his gracious work in the heart of the sinner, the sinful prejudices of the heart are subdued, and the sinner now sees and believes what was already clear, was already true all along. Not by some outside testimony, not by sophisticated philosophical arguments for the existence of God, though they may have their place, not by some kind of external evidence being added to them, but because the Scriptures themselves authenticate themselves to His heart. Otherwise, only really smart people would be Christians. You'd have to be an, if you're really going to believe, you've got to be an expert in philosophy and you've got to be an expert in archaeology and you've got to be an expert in all of these areas. And yet the Bible says God has hidden these things from the wise and prudent and he has revealed them unto babes. Not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God has chosen the foolish things and the weak things of this world that all the glory may be given to him. It's to them that he reveals his truth, that he gives the Spirit so that they see what even the most intelligent men in the world who are still in their lost, unregenerate state cannot see. They see and they hear the voice of God and they're convinced of the truthfulness of Scripture. Well, what are some practical implications of this for us? I'll just... I'll just focus on one, that this has tremendous implications for our whole approach to evangelism and apologetics, apologetics being the defense of the faith. As you know, we live in an increasingly post-Christian world in our culture today, and it can be alarming, and sometimes we wonder, what are we going to do? How do we deal with this? How do we address this? Well, let us learn from this. The problem is not that we need to come up with some kind of foolproof philosophical argument for God that's not been thought of yet, and then we can sit down with the unbeliever and the agnostic, and we can kind of sit around the table, and we'll put the specimen on the table. Who's the specimen? God's the specimen. And let's have an unbiased discussion as to whether the God, this God really exists or not. Well, what's the problem with that? The problem with that is there's no such thing as a sinner with an unbiased mind. It doesn't exist. 
God doesn't come to us asking us to, you know, put him on the table and examine, figure out what we think about him and whether we believe him. No, he demands our faith. He commands that men believe upon him. And men do not have an unbiased mind. There's no such thing as such. Man's unbelief, in other words, let me put it this way. Man's unbelief is not an intellectual problem. It is a moral problem. It is a spiritual problem. Scripture says they believe not the truth because they love not the truth that they might be saved. 2 Thessalonians 2.10, 2 Thessalonians 2.12. They believe not the truth because they have pleasure in unrighteousness. Jesus said this is the condemnation, that light has come into the world, but men loved darkness rather than light. Because their deeds were evil. You see, the problem is not that the Scriptures are somehow lacking, that the Scriptures alone are not sufficient to compel our faith. The problem is with the human heart. And we must remember what is the means through which God works by His Spirit to open the sinner's heart and to bring him to faith. Well, it's not something outside of the Scriptures. It's those very same Scriptures that right now He's refusing to believe. So then how should that affect our approach? Well, it tells us that we know that we have a hook in their conscience, that we know that the Bible is self-authenticating, that we know that God has not left himself without a witness. We know that they're suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. There's a sense in which whenever I'm sharing the gospel with someone, I have a little secret I know about them that they don't even probably know about themselves, that they wouldn't even admit themselves that they have. And that is they know God. Not in a saving way. And they have a conscience. They can't get away from that, though they try to suppress it. And it also tells us that the best defense of the faith is simply the positive, authoritative, spirit-empowered proclamation of God's Word. You don't have to be an expert in archaeology. You don't have to be an expert... In philosophy, I'm not saying it's bad to be an expert in those areas. It can be very helpful. But you don't have to be that, my friend. Be assured. Be, be encouraged. You don't have to be an expert in all those things. Just take the self-authenticating Word of God. That Word God has appointed is the means by which He brings sinners to faith in Christ. That Word the Bible describes as a sword that pierces into the soul. It's described as a mirror that reveals to men the truth about themselves. A lamp that shines in the darkness is described as a hammer that can break the hardest heart. And we must be confident in that word and take that word and proclaim it and apply it and open up its teaching and tell it to people and get it out into the community. And we must spread it abroad with unshakable confidence that the gospel is the self-authenticating power of God unto salvation, and we must accompany all of those efforts with prayer for the Holy Spirit to come, for the Holy Spirit to open men's hearts to receive God's truth. You know, when you read about the terrible spiritual conditions in England before the evangelical revival in the 18th century, in the 1700s, it's not that it was terrible, it's bad. In some ways, it's almost as bad as it is now in America. If you read uh, Dallimore's introduction, 
as he describes what the state of England was at that time. But it's not that there were no efforts to do something about it, to stem the tide of degeneration in the church and society. A man named John Connie Bear published a well-known work, Defense of Revealed Religion. He published it in 1732. Bishop Butler wrote his famous analogy, Defending Biblical Morality and Religion, in 1736. And these were both very, very learned works, and there were other efforts like this, but they had no effect. For one thing, very few people had the mental capacity to pour through them, much less to understand these men. But what was it that stemmed the tide and brought revival? In the words of J.C. Ryle, the instrumentality by which the awakening was commenced and carried on was of the simplest description. It was neither more nor less than the old apostolic weapon of preaching. God raised up a generation of spirit-filled, gospel-believing preachers, men who had been born again themselves, men who had personal experience of the power of God's Word within their own souls, men who loved Jesus Christ, men who were full of the Holy Spirit, possessed with an undoubted spirit-given certainty of faith in Jesus Christ and confidence in the Scriptures. God raised up a generation of men like that. It totally turned the world upside down at that time. Spurgeon once said it this way, A great many learned men are defending the gospel. No doubt it is a very proper and right thing to do. Yet I always notice that when there are the most books of that kind, it's because the gospel itself is not actually being preached. Suppose a number of persons were to take it into their heads that they had to defend a lion. There he is in the cage, and here come all the soldiers of the army to fight for him. Well, I should suggest to them, if they would not object and feel that it was humbling to them, that they should kindly stand back and open the door and let the lion out. I believe that would be the best way of defending him. For he would take care of himself. And the best apology for the gospel is to let the gospel out. Preach Jesus Christ and him crucified. Let the gospel out and see who will dare to approach him. The lion of the tribe of Judah will soon drive away all of his adversaries. And brothers and sisters, as I close, the word of God is sufficient for the salvation of sinners. And may God help us to be confident in that and to let the lion out. And as we do, may all of our efforts be joined to constant prayer for the Spirit's blessing. It's that simple. It's that simple. Preach and pray. Witness for Christ and pray. Plead for God with men. Plead with God for men. This is the old way, and this is still the way by which the kingdom of God advances in the world. As the Apostle Paul said, I determined not to know anything else among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified, and my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in the demonstration of the Spirit and of power. That's what we need today. May God grant it to us. May we be thankful for his holy word.
by which any of us who are in Christ today, it's that word that brought us to faith in him. Praise his name for his word. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you today for the scriptures, and we thank you that even today we get to celebrate the conversion of some in our midst to, through that very word, your holy word, the gospel, and by the work of the Spirit, were awakened to their lost condition and brought to put their faith in Jesus Christ. And we pray we'd see many more like them in the days to come. Help us not to doubt your word. Lord, there's so many things going on in Christian churches today, yet it's so rare to find men who faithfully open up and expound and simply preach your holy word. We pray that even from our congregation, you would raise up a host of such men. And so we commit all these things to you. We pray them in Christ's name. Amen. We hope you were edified by this message. For additional sermons, as well as information on giving to the ministry of Emmanuel Baptist Church and on our current building project, you can visit us online at ebcfl.org. That's ebcfl.org.